When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. subsidiary. Of the BBC. I knew very little about caves, um, almost nothing, until I went into my first one in Madagascar. I'm not a great swimmer. I was even worse then, and uh, I was scared. But I I absolutely fell in love with caves since then. I, I love the darkness, even the claustrophobic feeling of being in small caves. I find them just absolutely mysterious, breathtakingly beautiful, sometimes very uncomfortable, but I I don't know what it is about them. They they draw me in. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast, the podcast that understands that there's great beauty in the natural world, but often also a touch of danger. I'm Emily Knight. This is an episode that might make you very glad to be listening at home with a warm blanket and a cup of tea. In this episode, we're getting a brief brush with death. There's all kinds of things that can happen in a cave. You can get hypothermia because it's too cold, or you can uh, overheat because it's too hot, and that can happen in the same cave. You can't use your phone because you're deep in karst, this limestone tomb, basically, and you don't know, know what could happen. Yeah, it can be really sketchy. But... Once you're in there, I I feel quite calm. I'm not sure exactly why. Once I'm in and and working, I don't think of the the dangers anymore. I try to enjoy the moment, and I I don't know why I'm calm in caves, but I I, I do love them. My name is Prosanta Chakrabarti, and I'm a professor and curator of fishes at Louisiana State University. Yeah, I study fishes and evolution. Prasanta Chakrabarti is an ichthyologist and a taxonomist. It's his job to explore hidden corners of the world to try and find new species, species which haven't yet been given their place on the vast and still growing tree of life. I think I'm up to 15 new species, and I think my favourites are the cave fishes because, you know, if you want to describe a new species or, or find something that hasn't been discovered before, you want to go to places where few people have gone before. Some caves are absolutely enormous, you know, like they're hollowed out caverns in, inside of mountains. And, and those are dark and sometimes damp and, and uncomfortable, but just so beautiful that you have to, you know, you feel safe in there. Others are just tiny and s- slim. You could barely fit your helmet in those holes. And I just knew there were fishes in there. And so, you know, it was worth going down there. There's about 150 to 200 known cave fishes from different families on the Tree of Life. And so uh, each time one lineage goes into a cave, it could be for different reasons. One group can get flushed into a cave and get stuck there, 
and find a way to survive over uh, thousands or millions of years. Others got there pretty recently or are able to even escape and so may use that as a refuge. It's a different story each time and that's part of why I like them so much. It's, it's a mystery how exactly each group entered these caves and why and when and I like solving those mysteries. They slowly start to lose eyes over many, many generations, and they lose pigment as well. So they're these ghostly shapes, remnants of their surface ancestors. They're really like ghosts. But they are often the top predators in those caves, eating other blind animals. You know, because they're the top predators, they don't fear you. And because they're not used to humans coming in and pulling them out of the water, they just swim right towards you, which is a strange thing to experience. They're like, oh, oh, something's moving. I should go towards it, you know, and, and they swim up to you and you can you could almost like pet them, right? It, it really is spooky. There is no darkness that you can experience like that. I mean, if you shut your eyes or you open your eyes, you can't tell the difference if your headlamp's out. And then just the sounds, you can hear sometimes water dripping or flowing, but uh, it can be quite quiet. And that, that frightens people, but it's also just really calming and, and meditative. And then to put your headlamp down onto the water and, you know, the, the light shines like a laser. And then to see a, a little floating white fish without pigment and without eyes. How did these things exist in this environment? for so long and who are they related to yeah it still gives me the chills when i think about these guys and what a story of evolution they can tell the blind cave fish aren't alone down there in their subterranean pools these caves meters or even miles beneath the surface of the earth with no sunlight are nevertheless whole functioning ecosystems with their own complex food webs and occasionally some fearsome predators Sometimes there's, you know, 20-foot crocodiles <laughs> inside the cave. <laughs> the weirdest encounter I had was definitely with the eel. So there are freshwater eels that are like five, six feet long and as wide as your leg. And I didn't even know about them. In one of the caves in Madagascar, actually in northern Madagascar this time, I slipped in the mud and I kept slipping down into the water. And I had a, a metal net in my hand, and I felt this tug on the net, and it was something biting, like, hard. And I was like, that doesn't feel like a crocodile. And I, I pulled it up, and there was this huge eel, uh, this freshwater eel. And they can be really bitey and aggressive. We even saw it coming out of the water at other parts. And, you know, it's like a, a python crawling around the rocks out of the water and then going back into the water. So it was incredibly aggressive. And <laughs> they're just massive. I've seen, like, white tarantulas walking on top of the water. It's huge, you know, like the size of my hand. Just skipping across the top of the water like a, I don't know, like a, like a mayfly or something. It's like, did I really see that? You know, and you're just staring, you know, with your jaw dropped, and you're like, what is that? It was just such a weird thing. But the crocodiles and the eels and the tarantulas and the cold and the dark aren't necessarily the biggest threats you'll face in caves. On a trip to Madagascar, Prasanta and his team encountered a danger that even the beam of the head torch doesn't pick up. 
my friend and advisor, John Sparks, said, let's go to these caves. There's some cool stuff in here. I'm like, okay, let's see how this goes. It was one of the really greatest and scariest experiences of my life. We went to this sinkhole. It was actually our very first site in Madagascar. And it looked like someone had dropped a lake 30, you know, 40 feet into the ground. It looked beautiful. It looked gorgeous. I remember, I still remember the sun gleaming through the water and not a habitat I'd expect a cavefish. There's light. There was plenty of light. And so when we went down, we didn't know what to expect. This sinkhole, known as the Grotte de Vitan, is part of a vast, unmapped system of subterranean waterways. No one knows how far it extends. It's considered a sacred site, where the Madagascar locals sometimes come to offer prayers. But even the locals had no idea that there were fish down there. It wasn't an easily accessible place to anybody. There was a lip that we had to, you know, blindly climb down, something I'd never done. I was scared. I was really scared. And, and you never know what you'll be like in the field. You know, I've seen big macho people fall apart and, and small feeble people raise to their, you know, highest <laughs> heights of bravery. Uh, we swam around for quite a bit. Didn't see anything. I went back up. While Prasanta caught his breath back on the surface, others in the team, including the ichthyologist John Sparks, continued the search. They snorkelled for four hours in the gloom before they found what they were looking for and sent a specimen back up to the surface for Prasanta to see. And I was like, wow, these are, these are special. It was one of the few species that I've seen and upon first seeing it, I knew it was new. Usually you have to go back to the museum and compare it with lots of other things. When I picked up Typhliotris morari bay, I knew it was new. Uh, there are no darkly coloured, darkly pigmented cave fishes. Then, in the days and weeks following the dive, gradually the team began to get sick. A debilitating viral sickness that no one could properly identify. They called the sickness sinkhole fever. And although Prasanta didn't get sick himself, he saw the effects of it firsthand. But, you know, we thought it was malaria at first. And it didn't turn out to be that. It was hard to know what exactly happened. I know that's very a mysterious way of putting it. Um, it was funny at first because we were like, what's going on with everybody? And then it was scary, quite scary. Uh, I got a little sick, but not as bad as them. Some of them had to be sent home early, and um, I just got lucky. And uh, because I escaped it, I had sort of a survivor guilt, and, and I stayed on to do more field work um, for another few weeks. Uh, worrying about my friends, but everybody made it back. Everybody made it out okay. Typhliotris morari bay, that's the name we gave the fish, and morari bay means big sickness in Malagasy. And um, yeah, it gave uh, a few of us some big sickness. You know, swimming around basically a, a pit <laughs> where where things fall and don't come out isn't the best place to be, you know, accidentally drinking the water. And, you know, we probably picked up not just a new species, but some new illnesses as well, unknown to man previously. I can't see nothing. 
I love going into caves, but coming out of a cave is always a <laughs> relief as well. Here, we're walking out of the caves. I just got to say something. Hey, in case I never get out, uh, there's the end of the cave. You know, you go from absolute darkness to, you know, you can see, you know, the glimmer of, of light from the outside. At the very end of the cave, a little light there. But yeah, once you see the exit and you see the light and, and sometimes it's just like, wow, okay, we're, we're crawling out of this place and we've made it, you know, that's the end. It's, it really is fantastic. Then you realize how, how dirty you are, you know, covered in mud. I usually have a giant smile on my face because uh, I know we did it and accomplished what we needed to. Just got six fish. Yeah, I, I wish more people could experience that because it's really a beautiful nice thing. That. Oh, there we go. Heading out. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where today we're exploring the natural world and getting a brush with death. If we're talking dangerous animals, there are a few that come immediately to mind. Lions and tigers and bears, for starters. Snakes, mosquitoes, maybe a jellyfish. There's one animal that probably wouldn't be top of your list, but it turns out that you definitely don't want to tangle with it. If you are to be an unfortunate scuba diver and to have a tussle with a conus geographus, the cone will win, <laughs> hands down. Conus geographus. It's a snail, one of two deadly species of cone snails. I was intrigued by the snail because of sort of the David Goliath story of this tiny thing taking down things much bigger than itself. They do the unexpected in the most miraculous way. So if you've never seen a snail eat a fish, there's something you must see <laughs> because it'll forever change your perspective about who's a winner and who's a loser. You might well be familiar with a cone snail shell. They're those long, smooth, beautifully mottled shells you often see washed up on the shoreline or on the shelf of a restaurant bathroom who've gone for a beach theme with their decor. They're very beautiful. But Mandy Holford's fascination with the animals that live in these shells goes far beyond their good looks. Killer snail chemists is how I've been described in the past. On Mandy's Venn diagram of scientific interests, there are two circles, natural history and peptide chemistry. So that brings you to venom. A key thing to remember about venom is that unlike poison, it has to pierce your skin and get into your bloodstream in order to work. Remember, if you bite something and you die, it's poisonous. If something bites you and you die, it's venomous. Cone snails are venomous. Venom is made up 
predominantly of um, peptides, proteins, and small molecules. And that's the, you know, the cocktail of chemistry, basically. <laughs> we call them, or I like to call them, the assassins of the sea, right? Because they are usually hidden under the sand. They're nocturnal animals, so it's dark. <laughs> Not like it matters underwater. They are buried under the sand, and they have a siphon that they stick up, which is kind of like a nose. can smell if there's prey in the water. If they detect prey, then the other thing that pops up is their proboscis, which is kind of like a tongue. And on the tip of the proboscis is a harpoon, which is like a dart, I guess. And that dart is filled with venom. Once they smell the prey in the water, the tongue comes out with the harpoon on the end and it looks for where the prey might be. Once it finds it, it then injects the harpoon. Think of it as like a bullet coming out of a gun. Shoots into the prey. The prey immediately gets paralyzed and then the snail will sort of rise up from out of the sand, retract the proboscis or the tongue so that the prey comes with it and will swallow it whole. Once you've extracted the, the venom gland, it's fairly harmless to have them in a lab, the molecules anyway. But to really understand how it works, you've got to know where this ability came from. So on the first hand, we are studying how venom evolved. And it's considered a, a convergent trait, which means that it's found in all these different organisms, but it evolved independently in each of these organisms. There's not one ancestor that was venomous that then gave you snakes and scorpions and spiders and all of these things, no. All of them have their own lineage and venom occurred in, in all of their development. Our thinking is that perhaps that having venom enables these animals to diversify and allow more species to occur of this particular snail. Is that true? <laughs> we do not know. We have to test that and, and figure that out. We start by building sort of a family tree of the snails, and we map that to the presence or absence of a venom gland. So we found a whole clade that has the venom gland and other clades that do not. And that's very useful for us when we go out for an expedition because we can say we're only looking for the species that have a venom gland because right now we want to know that they're actively using venom to pursue their prey and we want to extract what that venom arsenal is made of, right? By doing that, we then are focused on particular snails and we don't collect the other snails. So Mandy and her team know what they're looking for, but collecting them is another challenge. If you pick them up, they usually recoil into their shells. So we use, you know, gloves, uh, scuba gloves and salad tongs, very high tech, <laughs> to pick them up and move them around and drop them into buckets and things. Back in the lab, they can extract samples of the deadly venom from the snails they've collected. And this is where it gets really interesting. Every snail has a unique venom cocktail. They have certain things that we know they contain that are similar. So all venom arsenals have things that go after, you know, blood, brains, and membranes, basically attacking the integrity of an organism. <laughs> but very few of the peptides that you'll find in those arsenals will be similar. With the snail venom as a guide, the lab's biochemists can synthesize their own peptides and test what they might be capable of. 
The venom peptides, for the most part, work at the surface of cells. Their action when they invade is mostly to stop or enhance a particular signal. So while these peptides have the power to dial pain up to the maximum, they also have the power to dial it down. Amazingly, with a little bit of chemical trickery, they can suppress the pain. They can switch pain off. Which is what happens with the first killer snail drug that's on the market. It's called Prealt or Zyconotide, and they use it to treat chronic pain in HIV and cancer patients. It's an alternative to um, opioid pain relief therapies. Many of the chemicals we use for pain relief, think of morphine, for example, are extremely addictive. But the peptides from these venomous snails offer us an alternative, a new way to treat pain without addiction. They are a range of human diseases and disorders that can be potentially treated with peptides or other compounds from venom arsenals, right? So everything from, you know, epilepsy to hypertension, diabetes. In Mandy's lab, they've found a compound from a snail that seems to attack liver cancer cells, and only liver cancer cells. They're still in the research stages, but this is an exciting discovery. When you're looking for drugs, you want things that are fast-acting, highly potent and very specific. And these venom peptides have the potential to be all three of those. The duality of the thing that can kill you can also cure you is a fascinating one. And I think it, it speaks again to why nature is so very special and why we are just sort of poking, poking our way in the dark when we try to investigate and recapitulate what nature does in the lab. In this podcast, we often meet people who are immersed in the natural world. People whose lives or whose work take them right into the heart of wild places and directly in contact with the dangers often lurking there. But few come quite as close as this man. OK, so my name is Gareth Patterson. For the last two decades, I've been living on the edge of the Neisner Forest in the Southern Cape, South Africa. Gareth Patterson is an environmentalist and an author who's worked for 25 years protecting African wildlife, but particularly one species, the lion. When I first started studying lions, it was thought that there was about a quarter of a million lions in Africa. Today, we feel that there could be less than 15,000. In the early 90s, Gareth was living in a rudimentary camp out in the dusty scrubland of the Thule Game Reserve in Botswana. In his care were three boisterous lion cubs. Teenagers, really. They were orphans, rescued by humans, and Gareth was training them up for an eventual release back into the wild. So I just got them out there for 8, 12 hours a day, every single day, and I was just totally immersed into their lives, and they were immersed into my life, which was a lion life. The three cubs, their names were um, Batian, that was the male, Ferrara, Ferrara meant joy, and Rafiki. Rafiki means friend. When Batian, Faraha and Rafiki were young, they spent all day with Gareth. As the cubs grew, they began to be more independent. But they'd always come back to the camp every now and then to visit and check in with their human brother. It was the end of January 1991, and all three lions arrived at the camp one evening and all seemed very happy. I hadn't seen them for some time. I mean, they were doing their thing. And I noticed with Rafiki that she had some membrane protruding from her. I had suspected that she was pregnant at that stage. She was only 33 months old. And on average in the wild, a lioness would be about 43 months old, to give you some sort of idea. 
So she was a terribly young mother. So I was concerned, but they all seemed very happy. She seemed very happy. And then they all went off into the night. I went out the next morning with this in mind, and I went to look for them, but with no success. And then that afternoon I went out again, and something remarkable happened, because all of a sudden she was just standing in front of me. She found me. She just popped out from nowhere. And there was no sign of the membrane, and she was calling me to follow her. But it's this strange thing with lions, when, when they're calling, they're, ooh, 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 when they're calling you. But they do this strange tail flicking, like the tail goes almost over their, over their back. It's almost like us saying, come over here. But it's always associated when, when they want me to follow them. She was doing that, but the sun was lowering and there's just no ways I could follow her. You know, I didn't know how far she wanted me to follow her or, or why, really. And she followed me back to the camp. And then her brother, he appeared that night. And then the following morning, they were still there, which was strange. And immediately she started this behavior again of wanting me to follow her. So we followed her. And I turned around and looked at Batty and... and I don't know. I, it's almost as if he was saying to me somehow, where are we going? And I'm saying, I don't know either, sort of thing. But she was so determined that we follow her. And she led us up this ridge and then along a crevice where there was some quite thick bush. And then she disappeared into this vegetation and then started calling like quite urgently to us. And then I went in, into this thick area and then saw this remarkable and yet very sad sight of there's Rafiki with this perfectly formed, clean, but very still little cub between her paws. I presumed that it was a stillborn cub. That's what I think, yeah. And uh, it was her real intention that she wanted me and Batin to see this cub. It was a sad moment. I mean, obviously sad, sad for her. I mean, it just goes to show we underestimate animals' intelligence and emotions generally. Scientists recognize this. Maybe perhaps it's on a, not on a scientific realm, but you know, on the spiritual realm. At this point, you might be wondering, how did Gareth end up here? Out in the grasslands, miles from home, mourning a lost cub alongside a lioness who treated him like family. That story goes back a few decades, and it involves a couple you might just have heard of, George Adamson and his wife, Joy. George Adamson and Joy Adamson, in the late 50s and 1960s, they were really pioneers when it came to wildlife conservation. George was a typical East African game warden, responsible, I think, at one stage for a chunk of Kenya, which was about the size of Britain. And she was an artist, hugely talented artist. If you've heard of them, it might be because Joy wrote a book about their life, which was then made into a movie in the 60s. It was called Born Free, and it was about their work with a lioness called Elsa, 
the first lion ever to be raised by humans, rehabilitated and then released back into the wild. The famous Elsa, Elsa the lioness, who was a huge star, animal star, in the 60s and 70s. By the late 80s, Gareth was working closely with George in Kora National Park in Kenya, rehabilitating lions and releasing them back into the wild. We got on terribly, terribly well, and uh, George one evening turned to me and he says, Gareth, I'm getting a bit long in the tooth now. He was about 82 years old, and uh, he said, I'd like you to, to work with me and after me. George had just taken on the three orphan cubs, Rafiki, Batian and Faraha. But working in conservation in Kenya in the late 80s was a dangerous business. Poaching was rampant, and taking a stand against it, as George did, made you very unpopular with some extremely powerful people. One day, a plane flew over the camp, and that normally to signal that there's visitors arriving and they're landing at the nearby airstrip. George had a German visitor in camp, Inga, and so George sent his tracker and Inga out to the airstrip to go and pick up the people. And they got about halfway there, and then suddenly armed men were on the road. It was an ambush situation. Um, they were armed ivory poachers. So these guys ambushed uh, the vehicle. They broke the leg of the driver. They grabbed Inga, were going to drag her off into the bushes. And uh, George assessed the situation. He saw what was going on in front of him. And he just put his foot down. He just had a handgun in his hand. And um, he just charged at them. The other occupants of the vehicle and George, they just died in a hell of bullets. He saved Inga's life and the driver's life. So George went out um, basically doing what he did throughout his life, which was saving life. I was in South Africa at the time writing a book about my time with George, and I just literally completed the book. I mean, this is all a lot of synchronicity in this story. And someone called me and they said, have you heard the news that George Edison had been murdered? Apparently I dropped the phone. I don't remember that, but they said I dropped the phone. So these cubs had grown up at that stage. At the time of George's murder, they were, I think, coming up for about a year old. Their rehabilitation was going well. I mean, a lion isn't really self-supporting until it's about 18 months to two years old. So it's a long childhood, and the cubs' future was very, very uncertain. And it seemed that they might actually have to end up in a lifetime in captivity, which would have been the last thing that he would have wanted. So I came up with this plan to move the lines from Cora to the Thule Game Reserve, the Thule Bushlands in Botswana, where I'd studied lions, and to rehabilitate them back into the wild. And that's how it all began. Which brings us forward to 1991, to Rafiki, the lioness, and her tiny cub. When lionesses lose cubs, they become fertile again fairly quickly. And within a few short months, Gareth noticed that Rafiki was looking pregnant again. It was in May of that same year. She was heavily pregnant at the time. And then she disappeared for four days. And then she appeared at the camp four days later. She was again doing this, this calling and this tail flicking. And I followed her across this plane, and we walked, and we walked, and we walked, and we walked. 
I mean, I pretty much knew what was going on. She was leading me to her nursery site, probably about a kilometer or so upstream. She had chosen the site very well because it was a thicket of what we call buffalo thorns. It's a dark green leafed, impenetrable bush. It's very well defended. And then she went down into the riverbed, was out of sight for just a short time as she entered the nursery site. And there was these tiny cubs. She led me to her, her four cubs. They weren't aware of me, I don't think. I kept very, very still, but it was an amazing experience to be led by this lioness who's living a, a wild life. And she just sat there very, very calm. I'd go and visit her every day and very often felt George's presence there. You know, you could just imagine him with his pipe and he'd just be looking there and just chuckling because he loved those cubs very much and that's ultimately what he would have wanted for them, you know. And maybe that's how it was all meant to be. Yeah. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. I'm Emily Knight and our stories today were produced by me and by Eliza Lomas. Next week, we'll be tapping into the art scene in the animal kingdom. Animals which build things, craft things and make beautiful music. We're finding the animal artists out there and telling their stories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.